0: This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM.
1: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Leadership in Action on Business Radio.
2: Welcome to Leadership in Action, SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by our school, the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. I'm Mike Hussein, Director of the Center for Leadership here, and I'm with my friends and colleagues, Ann Greenhall and Jeff Klein, who run the McNulty Leadership Program. Uh, We're doing this on Zoom, even though you're going to be listening to this without the Zoom video, and you can, uh, in the future, find us at Fridays at 9 a.m. here, Eastern, on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. And you can follow us, of course, on Twitter at SXM Business. So uh, before we get going, Ann and Jeff, I've got just a warm up question uh, with a little leadership behind it. University of Pennsylvania is in the process of opening up, but in a rather unusual way. So maybe, Ann, beginning with you, uh, what do you see out there? What's happening? Are students coming back? How are we going to teach?
0: Very good. Well, Mike, how about I'll leave room for Jeff. So I'll, I'll answer your question from the undergrad perspective. Uh, We learned not too long ago, a few weeks ago that the college houses or dormitories would be closed. And essentially that affects the freshmen and the sophomores. The upper level students typically live off campus and I hear through the grapevine that they are coming back to campus. Most of the classes, almost all of the classes, will be virtual, a combination of asynchronous and synchronous delivery, including the class that I co-lead, Wharton 101, the gateway course for incoming Wharton undergraduates. Jeff.
1: Well, Mike, it's a a pretty similar story on the, the graduate side. We are we're actually just wrapping up the first course for MBA students, um, management six ten, which is our core leadership course, and that that's gonna wrap up today. Um all of the MBA
3: preterm and the coursework uh was online. And so it was a, a virtual orientation. And
1: you know, I, I I think we learned a lot about certainly some of the, the constraints that come with uh trying to build virtual community and virtual relationships but also you know some of what's possible um commutes to campus are no longer necessary we've been able to attract incredibly engaged alumni and interesting speakers so you know it's it's still something that we're we're figuring out um and mike i i feel like we should turn the question back to you a little bit um as the uh the experienced veteran, how are we going to teach?
2: You know, I think we've gone from three dimensions to two, if I can use that as a metaphor. And uh, there's some complaining, of course, uh, about the lack of uh, a handshake or at least even an elbow bump. Having said that, though, in the last couple of weeks, I've been hearing uh, back from alumni, from students and others that actually the two-dimensional world here of Zoom calls and the like, uh, it There are advantages and I think we're learning uh, to appreciate the advantages, for example, of bringing people like our guests we're about to have right now uh, easily, so to speak, uh, via via Zoom. And I I think I'm also hearing from people in classrooms uh, that there is an advantage and it's sort of an equalizer for everybody to be up there on on the display. Everybody's picture name is, is evident everybody can get into a conversation. So in, in some respects, I think we we're learning new media, a new medium, and I think it's gonna to work to our advantage. So there it is, everybody. I think uh, we're, we're thinking about those topics in our setting. And of course, much of, this, uh, <coughs> much of this discussion stems from the fact that COVID-19 is seemingly here to stay longer than we had anticipated. And that's my lead in here to our guest today, uh, Rob Chestnut. Rob, great to have you here on the program. Mike, thanks for having me. And the the connection there is that Rob has written a a wonderful book on integrity. And in a period where we're working remotely uh, and where we depend on people to do the right thing, establishing a culture of integrity seems like a pretty good idea and especially a good idea to have done it before we need it. And for that, Rob is gonna take us into uh, a new book, listen to the title, it's a great book called Intentional Integrity, How Smart Companies Can Lead an Ethical Revolution. And Rob, you've been there, you've done that, you've worked with Airbnb, you worked with uh, eBay, you had worked uh, as a US uh, Justice Department prosecutor, so you've seen it from many, many facets. And let me just begin our discussion by asking about intentional integrity. So it's an it's a intriguing title. We all want integrity. And then why is intentional so important as well? Rob, over to you.
3: Well, it, my it, intentional integrity gets to the point that uh, we all think we have integrity. Uh, you know, it, you, I walk into rooms and ask how many people have integrity in the entire place. Hands go up everywhere because we're, we're easy on ourselves, to be honest with you. Yeah. It's something that, you know, we, we all see the world through our own eyes. And we uh, are very uh, good, I think, at rationalizing our own behavior. And we all think we're, we're good. And integrity is something that doesn't get much discussion. You know, it's a, a really a pretty poster on the wall with the sunset and the trees and a lake uh, and the like. But uh, how many businesses and organizations really uh, make an intentional effort to drive integrity into their culture and do something beyond the the canned poster or the the, the canned code of ethics? Uh, when you when you think about it, though, it's an important driver of business. It can have a big impact on your brand, and uh, you know, being intentional about a strategy in this area is a smart business.
2: Let me just quickly anchor that with a question and I'm going to turn it over to Anne here to get us going. In addition, uh, you did serve most recently as the Chief Ethics Officer at Airbnb. We all know what the company does. Many of us have been, in fact, guests in Airbnb properties. And in thinking about what you did there, now picking up on the second half of the title for your book or the uh, subtitle, How Smart Companies Can Lead an Ethical Revolution, If you could give us an example of something you did at eBay, I'm sorry, Airbnb, we'll come back to eBay a little bit later, uh, that helped lead that ethical revolution.
3: Well, I'll take you back to my first month uh, at the company. I was the general counsel at Airbnb for a number of years. Uh, But back in 2016, we started getting reports from users that uh, they were being discriminated against, uh, users of color. Uh, that guests were turning them down and uh, for for stays in the home, based on the color of their skin, and you know the reports started to multiply online. The press was you know started to cover it. And some lawsuits started to come flying in, and I, I remember, uh, you know, being a you know the the good general counsel. I ran off to start to do my work on, you know, what are the legal implications. Um, you know, are are short-term rentals even covered by the housing laws in the United States? And what's the legal responsibility of a platform if some of its users, you know, engage in bad behavior like this? And I and I remember you know, going in to sit down with Brian Chesky, the you know the CEO founder of the company, and I started to to walk him through some of the law. And Brian held up his hand and he said, "I don't care." I said, wait, wait a minute, what do you mean you don't care? And he said, well, Ram, our mission as a company is to promote belonging in the world. That is to connect people who have maybe very different backgrounds, come from very different cultures through immersive travel. If this sort of thing is going on on our platform, we're failing as a company. Mm. And we're going to go after this, and I don't care what the law is. And you know, that really set us on a journey. To, uh, to start looking at the way our website was designed. Uh, we, we took a number of steps that, you know, frankly, you know, caused us to lose some users. But that was okay uh, because you know, there was a bigger purpose than just hitting a, a quarterly number on a you know, number of nights. Uh, some, uh, something that we believed in as a company that I think in the long run was, was the right way for us to approach the problem. So Rob,
2: you reaffirmed one of the sayings that uh, kicks around this field, that integrity starts at the top. And I think your momentary experience there certainly says volume is about that. Ann, over to you.
0: Thank you, Mike and Rob. It's really an honor and a pleasure to have a chance to speak with you. I'd like to pick up on what you've said here. What I'm hearing you say is there is a difference between the law and ethics, the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. And maybe we can do something, but then there's a question about whether or not we should. So, can you talk a little bit about maybe the pivot point for you? You're trained in law. What led you to embrace uh, ethics
3: and integrity? Well, I think there's a big gap between uh, compliance and integrity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, compliance is your baseline. You know, you 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 need to be complying with the law. But what I've discovered. Is that it's a lot easier to run a compliance program if you've got an environment of integrity uh, that is uh, th- sort of basic to your culture. And so, if people are trained that you know we want to do the right thing and we want to act with integrity, that makes it far easier to uh, to run a compliance program and to stay on the right side of the law. And you know, frankly, you know the law is often behind. You know, laws are often uh, decades behind the speed of tech. And so, you know, what, what ends up happening is uh, companies that are just following the law and maybe even cutting some ethical corners there end up doing things that haunt them later when the world catches up with them. Uh, so, you know, what, what I, when I started on this, this journey of thinking about integrity in companies, um, I, I was watching Me Too, you know, the Me Too movement, and also watching some of the things that were going on at Uber. You know, literally, Uber is, uh, you know, just blocks from Airbnb's office, and it struck me. I'd rather learn from other people's mistakes, and I, I, I really felt that the world was changing, that behavior that leaders and companies had been sort of getting away with for quite a while, uh, you know, they were being called out for it. And if, if I wanted to protect the brand and you know, guard against risk, and as I learned later, if I actually want to even drive more business, uh, a smart thing to do is to think about making integrity a hallmark of your culture. Because I think when you do that, that is one of the best protections against sort of a brand wrecking event. Uh, and, and also something I found that, that resonates um, far more broadly than I could have anticipated. You know, when I, when I started uh, this integrity program at Airbnb, I was afraid that people would say, oh, you know, there's this old lawyer is trying to impose morals on me. The, the reaction I got was quite different. Uh, I, I had, I can't tell you the number of employees that came to me, some of them literally in tears, saying, I have never been at a company that's openly talked about the importance of integrity you have no idea what it means yeah i I had a woman who came to me during after one of our orientation talks and she said rob i was uh, i uh, worked for uh three years at this large tech company in silicon valley that everybody knows and she said that my boss kept propositioning me constantly wouldn't let wouldn't let it up and she said i had to leave my job because i didn't think my company would do anything about it. She said, Today's my first day at my new job. To have a leader come into the room during orientation for new employees and talk about this sort of stuff directly and how it's not going to happen at our company. That's not the way that we operate. She said, You have no idea what it means to me. for Rob,
2: I just need to remind everybody that this <laughs> is Leadership in Action Business Radio. Sirius XM channel 132. I'm your host, Mike Usim. I'm here with Ann Greenhall and Jeff Klein. And our guest today is Rob Chestnut, author of Intentional Integrity, How Smart Companies Can Lead an Ethical Revolution. Ann, pick up where you are in oh, moment, Jeff.
0: Very good. I-, I will be brief. Just simply to comment, Rob, that I'm hearing a couple points in your uh, example in that. And One is reinforce Mike's earlier point that integrity starts at the top, very important. And that integrity is a matter of uh, the behaviors and interactions with employees, with customers, with stakeholders, broader stakeholders, and you mentioned Uber, and that makes me think regulators as well. So how we behave in our relationships with all of those uh, stakeholders really, really matters. How about, let me pass the baton to Jeff so he gets his voice in here.
1: Well, thanks, Ann, and uh, again, Rob, thanks for being with us today. I wanna stay on the same thread here and and really ask you to talk a little bit about, um, you know, certainly integrity starts at the top, but, and I appreciate your points around you know, you arriving personally at, at new employee orientation to to reinforce the values. Um, I know at Airbnb you had four explicit core values. Um, how do you help employees translate those values into behaviors?
3: Um, well, you, yeah, that's a great point. And I think uh, one thing I learned sort of in the journey of writing the book is that, you know, there's some science behind this. I, I spent some time with Dan Ariely, at Duke University. You know, he's a behavioral sure. scientist who's done a lot of work in this area. Um, specificity is critical. You know, uh, silence and ambiguity are the enemies of integrity. So you know, you, you can't say do the right thing and then say, well, thank goodness we've now addressed this. <laughs> right. you, you need to talk to people specifically about what you mean because sometimes integrity can be gray and there can be different paths. I'll, I'll give you an example and I think it it reinforces what we talked about earlier about Things at the top. Uh, you know, when I was working on a, a, a code of ethics, you know, a fundamental rule for me is you can't have anything in the code of ethics unless your top leaders sign off on it. Because the worst thing you can do is make a rule that your top leaders aren't going to follow. So, I, I walked into an executive team meeting one day and said, uh, "Look, looking around at the world and what's changing, uh, uh, there's a gr- there's a lot of, of issues around senior leaders at a company." Engaging in romantic relationships with employees at the company. I said, this is only going to get us in trouble. So I said to everybody, what do you think about agreeing on a rule that says members of the executive team will not engage in any romantic relationship of any kind with any employee or vendor, consensual or not? And we just agree that we're going to take that off the table. And, you know, there was silence in the room for a minute. And, you know, one of the folks in the room said, oh, Rob, we're all in relationships or married anyway. And I said, well, judging from what I'm reading, that doesn't stop people. So what do you think? And we actually went around the room. We all looked at each other in the eye. And everybody said, I'm in. Now, that meant that we could go out to the employees. You know, I'm I'm sure it didn't break a lot of hearts, but we could put in our code of ethics. Look, members of the executive team aren't going to go there. And... If there is an issue, the the executive team member is the one who has to face the consequences. Uh, And and then from there, we we added two more corollaries. And that is managers cannot enter into any romantic relationship with anyone in their span of control, even consensual. And then number two, for anyone else, there's an ask-out-once rule. If, if you're not covered by the executive team rule or the management span of control rule, you can ask someone out one time. If you get a no and even a soft no, like, you know, my dog's sick or I've got uh, you know, relatives coming in from out of town, you got to drop it. Because, you know, the workplace isn't a bar, right? It, it's where people need to be able to come do their best and earn a living. And they shouldn't have to worry about, you know, being bugged. By someone that they're not interested in, so it's it's that kind of specificity that I think uh, uh, actually really resonated with people because I think a lot of folks didn't understand you know don't understand what the rules are anymore. You know, can you hug anybody at work? Right? Can you? Yeah. Uh, we, we even talk about things like that, uh, and and it uh, I think people appreciate the fact that you're being you're 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 having the honest, open, direct conversation with them about this and removing ambiguity.
1: Yeah. Rob, in, in the book you uh, you introduce a series of, of code moments, which are situations, um, we'd call them you know case studies uh, in the university environment that have um, that have a lot of nuanced complexity to them. How, how do you suggest a, a reader uses the code moments and, and more importantly, how can the organization use their own? Organizations use their own
3: code moments to reinforce their integrity. The great thing about the code moments is that they, they aren't wild hypotheticals. You know, and, and the great thing about the world of uh, ethics and integrity is that the world gives you examples every day. Uh, and you know, the the, the code moments—they're sure they're nuanced, but uh, that's not unusual. Uh, the, 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 these sorts of issues crop up all the time in business. So, what the code moments are a fun way for people to stretch their mind a little bit, and really think about problems. And, and uh, I've had a number of people write to me and say, "You know, Rob, I never you know you, you discuss the your your examination of a code moment. I never thought about it that way." And so, I, I think it's they're they're great exercises for. Uh, helping prepare you for your own code moment. I I tell people at Airbnb during orientation, you are all going to have integrity moments when you're at the company, which surprises everybody. I think a lot of people walk into the room and think, well, I'm a good person. I've got integrity. So it's uh, I, I don't really have to worry about this. I don't have to listen to this. And what they fail to appreciate is that we are confronted with integrity moments at work on a regular basis. And the question is, can you recognize them? Can you uh, understand that there are you know, ethics-related con- you know, consequences that, that are raised in these in these sorts of things? I I love I, I hate it when I talk to a company that says, well, you know, Rob, we don't really have any any. Ethical issues in our company. We've got we've got a hotline, and we never we hardly ever you know get any complaints. (laughs) And my response to that is that's the first sign of a problem, because you know I love a company that is very engaged, that's consistent, that's raising issues you know on a regular basis, asking questions. Uh, I, I think that's an environment where you're less likely to have a problem.
1: That's great, Mike. Back to you.
2: So Rob, we're going to take a break in just a couple of minutes, but I wanted to pick up uh, where we just were on this issue of how you get the message out, especially in larger firms where you're not going to meet many of the employees for starters, but maybe even more importantly, in the case of eBay and Airbnb, you've got sellers at eBay, you've got home letters uh, in large numbers at Airbnb and beyond. So, if you think of the metaphor of the of the stone dropped into a pond, the, the first wave that goes out, that is the inner circle there at the top. They get it, but how do you ensure that as as those circles spread out and reach home letters, and maybe sellers on eBay, that they also get the point? And it's two to me. It's two issues. One is it's a large number of people, and number two, they're pretty far away from you personally. So question is, how do you get that um, intentional integrity into the minds of the sellers
3: and the renters? Well, that's, that's a challenge. You know, it's one thing to walk into the executive team meeting and look around the room and come to an agreement about how you're going to treat a particular situation. The, the, look, the second challenge is how do you get that uh, driven throughout the culture of a global company? that may have you know we i think we had 30 offices around the world and you know, over 6000 employees and then just when you start to get your arms around that one then you have to start thinking about you know wow we've got a broader community here you know we've got millions tens of millions of people and how do you how do you drive integrity through that culture and you know the the answer is relentless communication and, and look, I, I spent some time talking to Adam Silver at the NBA about this. He was uh, – I've got a lot of respect for him as a leader. And we talked about it. He, Because he, he's got – like Airbnb, he's got a lot of uh, stakeholders. Uh, you know, he's got referees. He's got fans. He's got owners. He's got players. He's got team personnel and the like. And, you know, we we were talking about it. And he says, look, it's like television advertising. You can't run one television ad and figure, thank goodness everybody's got that message. You've got to repeat. You've also got to mix it up because different people learn different ways. They, uh, they react different ways to different messages. So uh, it's a fascinating communications exercise to reach people, but you can't give up on it. Uh, you, you've got to keep it going consistently. You can't do it once and say, I'm done for the year. Yeah, great. Terrific. Can
2: you give an example from your own experience? Let's make it Airbnb where you sent out repeated messages to, say, the property um, renters. So on, on that side, not the customers coming in, but those that are leasing out their home or their apartment. Uh, what would be a typical message that you would want to repeat repeatedly to them?
3: Well, you know, one message is, uh, that you want to get out to renters um, is the fact that you are uh, you're, you're in someone else's home. And that's a special, that's a special trust. You know, look at, look at Airbnb's in the trust business, right? It's, we're in the business of helping two strangers feel comfortable to the point that they're going to be sharing uh, a, a place to live together. So one great message is you need to respect the, not only the place that you're staying, but the fact that they may be located in a community and in a neighborhood that deserves respect as well. So you know we're we're messaging people about parties, about noise, about the fact that you might be on vacation, uh, and you may want to kick back and relax. But there's something about Airbnb. You know the beauty of Airbnb is that you're you're living like a local, you're mingling with people who are uh, in local communities. But with that comes an obligation. And so that's the, the kind of messaging we want to get out to people. You know,
1: Rob, I, I think if, if we approached most um, most CEOs or most executive teams, they would all be in support of living a living a life of integrity, living a career of integrity. How would you suggest that they kind of track or measure how they're doing? Um, it, it's a hard it's a hard area to get assessment in. And I, I wonder what advice for, for executives and, and for anyone in an organization that you'd have about, you know, kind of creating the, the scorecard or the report card that, that lets you know how you're doing.
3: Sure. I think, you know, you, you do what you measure in business. And, you know, so often businesses are terrific at measuring financial outcomes, Things that are related to you know their you know how the website traffic is going, what the profits are, and the like. And so it's really no surprise that a lot of ethical challenges come up around uh, what's going on in the pursuit of hitting a a number, particularly a quarterly number. You know you, you certainly hear phrases sometimes from leaders that that I, I, I don't respect, things like, uh, we need to hit this number no matter what or whatever, you know, whatever it takes, get this done. And what I like to see is a, a more nuanced approach to what you measure. You know, I, I, your financial measurements are obviously really important because your investors are critical stakeholders. But uh, I think as we're all recognizing there are other stakeholders that you you need to, to be working with if you're running a business. So, uh, I love to see a scorecard that, that recognizes those stakeholders and measures their health.
0: Mm-hmm. So
3: you need, a, you need a scorecard that measures the health of your employees. And you look at Airbnb, you know we actually had measurements. We, we were you know, Brian was a big believer and still is a big believer in the stakeholder uh, principles. So mm-hmm. he you know, we recognize that we have investors, employees, guests, hosts, and communities. And, you know, if any one of those stakeholders is not successful, then we're not successful. So we had measurements to measure the health of each one of those stakeholder communities. And we actually have a board that holds us to it. And the board gets those reports. You know, the, the challenge of, you know, managing to stakeholders is, you know, if you, you need to look at every major decision. Yeah. And for every major, major decision, you need to think about what are uh, the implications of this decision for each of the five stakeholders. Now, it's rare that you're going to get a decision that's going to be good for all five stakeholders. That's easy, boy. If you can come up, and get those those sorts of things, you do those quickly. But uh, more often, it's a decision that may benefit one or two. It may hurt one or two. And and. That's okay, so long as you're keeping a longer, you're, you're taking a longer view of things, and mm-hmm. over time, if you're consistently making decisions to the to the benefit of one or two of the stakeholders, or to the detriment of one or two stakeholders, uh, you got a problem, and you need a board that's going to hold you to it, and you need metrics that can tell you how they're doing. So let's take host. Look, you know, if if we s- increased our take rate on host and started taking a number that, uh, you know, a, a number that I think would be, you know, well out of line, like the Apple, like the, the number to, to pick on Apple for a minute, they take 30% of revenues from their, their app store. That's a big number in my mind that's hard to justify uh, based upon the, the value that they bring. So when you do that, you might benefit your own financial number, but you're making it a lot harder for another critical stakeholder to be successful you know we want our host to be successful so we actually measure you know we look at how much how much can they actually make at the end of the day I think a mistake that uber makes is that you know uber uh, U- uber takes uh, a nice chunk but when you when you look at all the costs that uber and Lyft drivers have to pay right? Uh, at the end of the day, there's not hardly anything left for the driver. And so the drivers aren't successful. And I think that's led them uh, to, to face a number of policy challenges uh, because th- they have a, a critical stakeholder that's not that's not being well served. You know, so I, I think companies need to know who their stakeholders are, come up with specific metrics to uh, measure the health of those stakeholders, and look out over a period of time and make sure that they're each being taken care of.
1: Yeah, I mean the, the the perspective taking that that you're really describing here, the ability, the the really empathetic ability to understand the impacts of policy decisions, the impacts of business practices on a wide group of stakeholders, um, is is really important, right? And it it mirrors much of what we talk about in terms of building effective teams and, and building effective collaborations across groups. Um, how, how much of this information, uh, would you recommend organizations are, are, you know, actively sharing with their stakeholders as well, if they're, they're building these scorecards and, and looking out over a long
3: period of time. Well, I, I, am a believer in transparency, and I think that the more you can share with people, uh, about what you, what you think of as important, um, helps the dialogue. Uh, because, mm-hmm. because in reality, you can't, you know, you, you can't go off and decide what's important for somebody else. You need to be listening to your employees. You need to be listening to your host and your guests and find out from them what they think is important. And then you can't be afraid to share that information and talk about it openly. You know, look, I, I, uh, uh there's a company I, I was looking at the other day called robinhood and they you know robinhood talks a lot about you know the the importance of getting investors you know, uh, you know particularly less experienced investors involved in investing in the stock market and their goal They say is to empower these investors so so that they can participate in the financial benefits of the market. But they've come under a lot of criticism because uh, it's highly questionable whether these investors are actually successful when they're doing this investing. And, And if they're not very sophisticated investors and they're losing money. Uh, the, the platform's not successful. and I think the world is like calling on Robinhood to start releasing some data about how successful their investors are uh, because that, to me, that's critical to understanding whether they're accomplishing their mission. Mike,
0: back to you. Well, maybe I'm going to jump in just for a second, Jeff, here if I can and just slip in a question. Um Rob, can I just take this in a slightly different direction? You've been talking about data and metrics. Can you talk a little bit about the science of integrity? Uh,
3: It was interesting. You know, when I was talking to Dan Ariely about these things, uh, you know, we had started uh, our integrity program at Airbnb. And I was really surprised to find out that there was actually some science to back up some of the things that we were doing because it was entirely accidental on our part. Um, You know, Dan does uh, an interesting experiment. that that demonstrates uh, an important point around uh, integrity. Again, we we all think we have it. And I think, particularly coming from a federal prosecutor background like I did, I think my initial reaction around integrity was well, you know, most people have integrity. There's some a few bad apples, and all we got to do is just find those bad apples. Hopefully, weed them out during the interview process, and and we're going to end up having integrity. It, it turns out with the science, it's a lot more nuanced than that. He he he. Uh, Dan fills up a room with with uh, people and hands them a sheet of paper, with filled with math problems. <laughs> and he says, "All right, do these math problems. I'm not going to give you enough time. Uh, when I say stop, stop." And so people take the math problems, they start working on them. Dan says, stop. He then says, come to the front of the room and one by one, stick your sheet of, of paper where you've been working on math problems into this shredder and then head out the door and tell the proctor how many problems you, you finished. Right? And the proctor will give you a dollar for everyone that you, you tell them you finished. <laughs> so, right, people people head out, you know, they do the problems, they go to the shredder, and then they head out the door. But what Dan doesn't tell them is that he's modified the shredder a bit. The shredder only shreds the outer edges of the piece of paper. So he knows exactly <laughs> how many problems everybody's done. And fascinating. What percentage of people lie under those circumstances? Right? Um, right, and yeah. you know, Dan's done this problem with tens of thousands of people all around the world uh race socioeconomic background gender it doesn't matter 70% of people lie 70% pretty extraordinary right and uh most of them don't lie by a large margin they they do what he calls fudging uh people tend to fudge a bit in their own self-interest but they'll fudge only as much as they can do it and still feel good about themselves mm-hmm. Right? So understanding this is critical because what we've learned is that cultures that are very creative or have very highly intelligent people are actually more prone to integrity issues mm-hmm. because those people are really good at being able to talk themselves into right. uh, saying that something is, is okay. And, you know, Dan, when, when I asked Dan like what he would do to establish a high integrity culture, he said, focus on the little things, because what happens is people, um, once people start to go down that road fudging, <laughs> the first time they do it, You know, there's a jump in their brainwaves and it's a little, but once they get over that first one, it becomes easier and easier. So, uh, you know, Dan gave me another uh, set of examples. He said when they they run a variation of the math problem test, they do everything the same, except at the beginning of the test, they ask people to write down as many of the 10 commandments as they can remember, right? right? So what happens? Well, Dan learns, first of all, no one can remember all the Ten Commandments. In fact, most people can only remember two or three. But more importantly, after he asked people to write down the Ten Commandments, cheating virtually disappears. So reminding people of their better self and a sense of ethics at the beginning of an exercise (laughs) actually has a significant impact on people's integrity. So what you need to do is you need to create this environment You need to create a workplace where people believe that everyone around them is acting with integrity and that integrity is valued by the company, particularly leaders. Again, this gets back to why leaders are so important. People are watching what leaders say and do. And uh, integrity is actually contagious. If if you see others around you acting with integrity, that forces you to step up your game because you want to feel good about yourself. And so, you know, what we really focus on is this notion of an environment where, you know, the leader is the thermostat, not the thermometer. A thermometer takes the temperature in the room, but a thermostat sets it. Leaders set the thermostat. And uh, a CEO and a leadership team are creating the temperature that the entire company operates in. And by moving the thermostat over toward, Integrity is important, do the right thing. That's going to inspire everybody, and it's going to spread throughout the company. But on the other hand, if people see leaders cutting corners, not talking about integrity, or silent about it, uh, in, in the absence of encouragement, it's like a, it's like your your vegetable garden. If, if you don't pay attention to that garden, it, the tendency is for it to go downhill. Uh, but it, with effort, it can be a very rewarding exercise.
2: Thank you, Rob. It's a very good metaphor there. I'm
3: going to just remind everybody that this is
2: Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Channel 132 on Sirius XM. I'm Mike Uh, Yuseem, and we are, and Greenhall and Jeff Klein and I are here with Rob Chestnut, the author of Intentional Integrity. And Rob, to pick up on on your last point there, let's uh, think about this a little bit where things can go wrong. And just to make up an imaginary scenario, but it's probably one you lived a couple of times now, at least um, you're called in by a top person at another company that you're working with maybe, or they read your book and they want to hear more about this. And they say, great, I, I've, got, I've got to get it going at the top. I need to send out messages. I want to build a kind of a mindset where people look around and see other people behaving with integrity and therefore they ought to too. But then they say, what can go wrong? What's going to get in the way of uh, all of the above? So if you could pick up on that just as a warning where things can go wrong if not properly handled in this terrain.
3: Sure. Well, there's so much can go wrong because we're human. Uh, I, I think one thing that goes wrong is that, you know, when business is going great, uh, it's uh, it's easier, right? But as soon as there's a first sign of trouble, uh, you know, people can can often revert to uh, their their worst selves, uh, and, and so I I tell people that crisis uh, is a time that reveals character. Mm. My mom used to tell me that as a human, just as a basic human quality. But I th- I think it's true for business as well. Uh, but in a crisis, sometimes leaders can revert to behavior uh, that. Uh, can lack empathy that can be very take oriented you know adam grant has a wonderful book give and take that illustrates that uh, even though someone's initial reaction in in a difficult situation might be to to be a little more selfish and to try to you know to take what's yours and, and be secure in reality the data shows that the more you give The more success that you enjoy financially, even uh, in return, which seems paradoxical, but I think it's true for companies as well. That, you know, in in a time of crisis, you may reflexively uh, revert to the dog eat dog business world sort of thinking. Uh, In in reality, that's a time to uh, show empathy when you can and recognize that when the world around you is filled with fear. It's actually a wonderful opportunity to build trust because you know a, a, an act of empathy or kindness or thought during uh, a time of fear like this can have a, a long-term impact in building trust. And right now there's a trust deficit. You know, right now in the world, you know, I, I think trust in government, trust in business, trust in media, all at, at all-time lows, according to the Edelman Trust Survey. So you know, using an opportunity uh, like a crisis, it it can, can really help build your business in the long run. Rob, uh,
2: that's great. We've got a few minutes left, and I'm going to have
3: uh, Jeff
2: and Ann each uh, throw a final question at you. And then, Rob, we're going to um, invite you, if you wouldn't mind, to join us in what we call our After Action Review. So we'll take the final couple of minutes to pull out what's really critical from all the things we have referenced. And I'm going to invite you uh, to join that in just a couple of minutes. So, Jeff, a final question from you. I'm sorry, Ann, I saw your hand go up. Yeah. Thank you.
0: <laughs> Thank you. I can't resist because okay. we're we're in a we're in a slow moving crisis, a pandemic, and I'm just wondering if Rob, if you could comment on maybe a positive illustration of an organization that is that has responded ethically and well in the face of the pandemic.
3: Sure. there, there are a lot of neat stories out there. Uh, that are inspiring about what some companies have done in the face of the pandemic. Uh, you know, I, uh, I remember uh, talking to a company that they, they looked at their business and recognized that, you know, the, the number of the things that they were doing uh, had similarities to ventilators. And what they recognized is uh, that they, they actually went and downloaded service manuals. From the internet, uh, because they learned that there were literally tens of thousands of -of out-of-service ventilators that hospitals needed. But you know, there was uh, when there was a ventilator shortage, people were talking about how can we build ventilators, and I think they recognized that. Well, by the time somebody can can get production going, uh, it's too late. But it wouldn't be too late if they could service them. So the company actually put together a team on its own initiative, and decided that they could uh, put out the call for out-of-service, uh, out-of-repair ventilators. Uh, their first weekend, they they took on the project. Uh, they got a dozen ventilators back in service. And then they set up one of the company's production lines that wasn't being used because of COVID and could actually service 100 a week. So they you know, they, they did this not because there was money in it but because they recognized that they had talent uh, and they had the ability that a lot of other places didn't have and that they can make a difference in the world. And I think you know, you know companies that, that look at what they've got and then and, and can recognize that they can make a difference. That, that What they did inspired their employees in ways that they would never otherwise be able to do. And I'm sure they're going to get a number of benefits in the long run from what they did there. Uh, but that's a great example of, you know, look, we need companies to step up and, and help solve some of the big problems in the world. And I admired that. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks, Ann. And you know, it maybe in
1: the spirit of the after-action review that we're we're about to launch into here, um, Rob, what advice do you have for for companies on how they learn from their experiences, um, both the mistakes that they've made as well
3: as um, you know the the successes that they've had? I love learning from other people's mistakes. So what I'd encourage companies to do is to look around. You know, the Internet's full of stories of companies where things have gone wrong. Uh, look, you know, just, you know, in the last week, it seems, you know, what McDonald's is going through with what, with what happened with their CEO, you know, the Alaska Attorney General resigning and the like. You, you can learn so much from what other people are doing. And I, I'd encourage them to uh, a company to sit and, and look at the brand defining mistakes that companies have made during the pandemic, and you know, you could you could spend uh, uh, just a day going online and and listing them all out, and then thinking about well, how is what you know my company is doing? How are we vulnerable to something similar? And I, I you'd you'd be surprised at, at how many opportunities there are to learn from other people's mistakes. And so I, that's what I'd encourage folks to do.
2: Hi, right, Rob, a good note to end on. And we've got about four minutes here. So, Jeff, beginning with you, main point you'd like us to hang on to our after-action
1: review. Well, I mean, I think for me it's it's in the the macro and the micro when we think about how to build intentional integrity, you know, the the macro being the the stakeholder analysis and the you know scorecard kind of measurement that happens over the long term. And the micro being the, the specific examples that give an employee the, the chance to wrestle with hard choices and some of the trade-offs um, that are present in the code moments that that Rob lays out in his book. So using both the macro and the micro to build integrity. Great
2: great point, Jeff. Uh, and
0: Oh, great. I love that point, Jeff. Thank you. I think uh, since this is a show called Leadership in Action, I'm going to turn my attention to the The person at the top, whether CEO or director, um, and how he or she is a thermostat, someone who sets the bar and needs to embrace uh, in word and deed the code of ethics in order to really make a difference in the organization.
3: Great. Super. Rob, how about from you? Leaders are traditionally uncomfortable dealing with controversial subjects. And I think a lot of times leaders have been uncomfortable talking about integrity. It's the sort of thing that uh, they outsource to legal and HR where it becomes compliance. So I think for me, it would be uh, integrity is a two-edged sword. It can bring your brand down if you don't pay attention to it. But on the other hand, it can be a wind at your back. Uh, Employees and consumers Uh, are inspired by purpose-driven companies and want to be part of it. Uh, So as a leader, you you need to to take this on, get through the discomfort and address integrity directly uh, because it can make a huge difference in your business.
2: Rob, great word there. And I'm going to end with the metaphor I offered along the way. Integrity begins at the top, but it has to ripple out to the front lines. We've got to to begin at the top, but don't forget the, the front lines whatever it may be. So Rob, thank you for joining us. If people want to know more about you, how can they learn? They know where to find your book. It'll be on Amazon and everywhere else that sells online. Uh, So uh, let me remind everybody, it's called Intentional Integrity. Uh, But Rob, if people want to
3: know more about you, where, where would that be? Well, I'm on LinkedIn every day. I try to do a post about integrity in business. So I welcome folks from your show to reach out to me and connect with me there. Uh, If you're interested, you can also reach out to me at www.intentionalintegrity.com.
0: For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.